Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Would you pray with me? Thinking of Mike Dimmon's prayer that um, my words are spoken, but Lord, you would be the divine editor of this message and your words would be heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's nice to be back this morning after a really fun festivity last night. We took a kind of a selfie right here with many of you in the background, and Jenny and I looked at that picture this morning, and Jenny just said, what a sweet church, and we just, we just love you guys. It was really fun to party last night together and enjoy the pageant. Well, unfortunately, this morning we have a bit of a shift in gears from all the fun Christmas fe- festivities. Again, I have the unenviable task of inviting you to put down the hot chocolate and the Christmas cookies for a moment and instead feast upon the message of the bug-eating wilderness prophet, John the Baptist. His words have an uncomfortable aftertaste, a bit like the locusts that he ate. Um, Notes of condemnation and fiery wrath and repentance and judgment. And in my own heart, I am sure maybe, well, maybe in yours, there's a temptation to take what my parents called a no-thank-you serving of the vegetables in my home. That was was like a two-bite minimum, and then you move on to what you really want to eat. And so there's a temptation to take a a no-thank-you serving of John the Baptist's message and then to move on. But as an exercise of trust that the inspired words of God are always nourishing for us, no matter how difficult they are to swallow, let's agree to, to humble ourselves under them and to ask the Lord what he has to teach us through these weighty words. In an attempt to help us savor the words and taste them afresh, I'm going to do a preaching experiment. I'd like to highlight this teaching by turning it inside out. So here it is, Luke 3, 7 through 20, John gives us a manual titled, How to Oppose Almighty God, Four Steps. How to Oppose Almighty God, Four Steps. So to get started opposing Almighty God, deny, downplay, or ignore the reality of his wrath and judgment. In verse 7, John the Baptist says to the crowds, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And the picture is of snakes fleeing a brush fire. If you'd really like to oppose Almighty God, then begin by denying the reality, first of all, of snakes and the reality of the fiery wrath of judgment. So, first, wrath makes no sense without snakes. Um, We need to go back to Genesis often to understand what we're reading. So let's go back to Genesis 3 and read how God pronounces judgment on the viper, on the serpent who tempts Adam and Eve to reject his words. In Genesis 3, we read this. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. The church fathers called this the first gospel, the proto-euangelion, the first promise that looks ahead to Jesus as the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the snake, but not without suffering himself. So coming to terms with God's wrath means coming to terms with the reality of snakes in the garden. Several weeks ago, I quoted Miroslav Volf's Exclusion and Embrace, where he writes that it takes the quiet of a suburb to believe in a God who refuses to take up the sword. And his point is just that too comfortable a life 
we have too comfortable a life that predisposes us to thinking of the snake-destroying wrath of God as harsh or unnecessary or cruel or just a, like a psychologically damaging relic of the past. But most people for most of history have lived with a pressing awareness of snakes in the garden. They've been hurt by the pride of religious leaders who abuse and corrupt. They've been hurt by the pride of uh, governments. They've been hurt by families. Their families have been ravaged by things like genocide and unjust violence and unpredictable war. Their daily bread was not a given, but it was a bone-aching struggle against forces of disease and oppression and, the, and the, like, the clenched fists of the wealthy who controlled the resources. So Wolf is trying to bear witness that violence and injustice actually thrives today. The 20th century is the bloodiest on record precisely because the idea of divine vengeance does not. Because without awareness that there is a snake-crushing God who's going to hold evil accountable, perpetrators of violence and injustice multiply. And victims of violence and injustice are forced to choose. Do I either languish as a victim, hopelessly, in this victimization and being victimized by violence and injustice, or... Do I take up the sword myself because there is no one to avenge me? So I fight back, thus perpetuating the cycle of violence. So when you are face to face with a viper, the choice is simple. You've got to kill or be killed. But here is a significant problem. There is a viper, so to speak, in our midst, in us. For all have fallen sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this isn't just a message about how there's sin out there, but there's sin in here. And yet, in verse 18, John says, I have a message of good news for you. Does this sound like good news so far? That the wrath of God is coming to crush every snake, even the ones in you. So on the one hand, you have God crushing all evil, all sin, the defeat of death, all snakes. You know why they call Hawaii paradise, right? No snakes. So he's going to get rid of all snakes and turn the world into paradise. But that means crushing the snakes in us as well. So if you'd like to oppose Almighty God, here's what I advise you do. Puff out your chest with pride and tell him quite plainly, I am not accountable to you. I will do as I please. And just as he goes on trying to lovingly warn you that he will, in fact, hold you accountable, put in your noise-canceling headphones and dial up the volume on John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. John Lennon was living for today when he abandoned his five-year-old son, Julian. Of his dad, Julian said, I felt he was a hypocrite. Dad could talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could never show it to the people who supposedly meant the most to him. John Lennon's advice is terrible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You are asked to live with an awareness that the things we do or don't do today affect tomorrow. They ripple out from today, like when you throw a rock in a pond and it ripples out, sending love and blessing into the future or sending cursing and destruction into the future. And in the future, you and I will come single single file, as I've said, before the judgment seat of Christ. What will you say? This is a segue to the second way to oppose Almighty God. When you come before him today, tomorrow, upon your death and judgment, 
rely on your pedigree. Rely on your pedigree. John 8 goes on to, John, in verse 8, John goes on to say, Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, why would they say this? Israel had a persuasive argument, in fact. Judge us not, Almighty God, for we are Abraham's sons and daughters. God, don't you remember Abraham? You loved him, you chose him, and you said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless all your descendants. Well, here we are. We're Israel. We're, his, we're, his, we're your treasured possession. So they're, they're pedigree, right? Likewise, we're tempted to assert our pedigree over and against God's judgment. Baptized in church, and I've never left. At least I still go back every Easter. Top of my class in seminary, summa cum laude, look at, look at all my intellectual accolades. Take it easy, God. I, I, try, I mean, you're grading on a scale. I tried to be a good person. I did my best. I did better than most. Um, or perhaps, you know, for most of us, look, look at my fine robes. Look at my religious record. Flawless church attendance, daily quiet times, regular service of the poor. To be honest, almighty God, you owe me a pass. And John dismisses pedigree as a means by which we please God. John says, for I tell you, God is able to rose up, raise up from these stones children for Abraham. John is beginning to do here what Jesus will finish. He's redrawing the boundary lines of Israel, so to speak. The people of God are no longer physical descendants of Abraham, but in Jesus' words from Matthew 12, the people of God, the family of God, is now, quote, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he or she is my brother and sister and mother. So if asserting your pedigree is in opposition to God's heart and will, what then? If by chance you are among those strange few who wish to welcome Almighty God to make his path straight, don't assert your pedigree, rather repent. The invitation is to repent. Let's look at judgment and repentance for a moment and answer the previous question. How can Almighty God judge all evil and crush every snake without crushing us? John says in verse 9, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that therefore does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And here are the words we have difficulty swallowing. Axe at the root, thrown into the fire. Here's a plain and direct warning about the judgment of God to come. That those who oppose Almighty God and his purposes revealed in Christ will be held accountable. I want to make two further points here. First, though fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible also says that perfect love casts out all fear. 1 John 4 says that if we still fear, we are not perfected in love. I've shared before that I had a wild dream in seventh grade that sticks with me to this day. It was the end of the world. And the only way to get to heaven was on the back of like a Looney Tune style red rocket that was blasting off from my town's Dairy Queen parking lot. <laughs> and after panicking and hurrying to pick up my brother and my girlfriend, we arrived at the Dairy Queen just in time to see the last rocket disappearing behind the clouds. We'd been left behind. Comical aspects aside, this dream came with this deep, deep sense of dread. You know how feelings can be amplified unreasonably in dreams? Just like the deepest dread I've ever felt. And I was sure that I was destined for eternity without God's light and his love. And then the, the fear that came from that dream actually motivated me for like a year. I was like in the word and I was like, and I know that's kind of strange, but fear played a role for a season. But not for long. Eventually, that had to take a backseat to God's love and grace. Fear may jolt us off the starting line, so to speak. 
But if we're to run with endurance the race set out for us, we must step in his love and his grace. His love and his grace. But fear may play a role. And there are, certainly there are those of us and those of us around us who may need to be reminded of the awesome judgment of Christ. The second thing to say is simply this. There's a lot of love in this warning. I hope you see it. In, the author, in one author's words, if you believe there are two roads ahead of you, one which leads home and the other off a cliff, you don't need to despair, especially if the two roads are clearly marked with signs, as are the roads of heaven and hell. You see, you simply take the road home, which Almighty God has paved with his own blood, sweat, and tears. Remember the words of Peter, chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is patient towards you, not wanting that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here we come to this all-important R word, repentance. The warning again in verse 9 is clear. Every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we are tempted to read pedigree into this, aren't we? A prodigious tree from a prodigious tree line bears prodigious fruit. So we say, okay, i got to bear fruit in order to avoid judgment. So I'm going to get busy trying harder and being better. No. What does John say in verse 8? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bearing fruit is not the repentance itself. Bearing fruit is necessary, but it is the natural byproduct of something prior. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance is the thing. John is very wise. He knows this is ultimately a heart issue for us, not a behavioral one. This is not sin management. If you want to deal with a tree, you deal with the root. Isn't it interesting that John says the axe is at the root of the tree? Is that what you think of when you think of an axe cutting at a tree? I think of the trunk. He says the axe is at the root of the tree. He says you want to deal with a tree, you've got to axe the roots. You want to deal with a person, you've got to take an axe to the roots. So if we want to bear fruit, we must address the root. We must address the heart. How do you address the root of the human heart? Repentance. To repent is to simply turn your entire person away from your sin and towards your Savior. It is a redirection of the heart and the mind and the will away from one thing and towards God and love and trust. It is a reorientation of the whole person. And repentance is the answer to our question, how can God crush every snake without crushing us? Because his holiness and his justice means the cup of his wrath will be poured out on all evil and all sin. But through faith and repentance, your sin is taken by Christ, who became sin for us on the cross, and drank the full cup of God's wrath to the very bottom. That's why he's sweating blood in the garden. It isn't just the pain of the cross to come. It's the realization that, I mean, he prays, let this cup be taken from me. What's he saying? The cup of your wrath. That's the real fear, thing to fear. But this is the offer of Christ. Let me drink the cup of your judgment. Like Harry and Dumbledore in the cave, the drink of despair must be drunk. Drink? Drunk? Drinking? Anyone? <laughs> oh, oh, see, it's not just me. Okay, must be drunk. The cup of despair, the drink of despair, must be drunk if evil is going to be vanquished. And the loving offer of Christ is the same that Dumbledore offers. Harry, let me drink it for you. I will drink it. In the end, through the, the warning of judgment that we're talking about, it is, it is severe, but I want you to see that it's the Lord's kindness that invites us to repentance. The Lord desires not the death of sinners, but that sinners should turn from him, from their sin, and live. 
So he runs towards us not as an officer to a criminal, but as a firefighter into a fire, or as a father to a child in danger. That's the heart of God. And it's that which addresses our roots. Because then when we see our God's sacrificial love for us, repentance is not a duty but a desire. We begin to delight in his ways. I'm still making my way through the final episode, which is very long. Um, But in the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, I know some of you are listening to it. There are many examples of Mark Driscoll's brokenness. And many of them I think, yeah, that was horrible. Um, And also, how humbling to know that my own sinful heart is capable of the same self-centeredness and and egoism. Maybe it takes different forms for me, but for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? But what troubles me most in this story is simply the lack of repentance around every turn. The son of a former Mars Hill pastor travels to Phoenix, where Driscoll is now pastoring a church. And this young man's life was turned upside down by the way that his dad was mistreated by Mark Driscoll and by Mars Hill. And so this young man goes and he faces Mark after church one day. And, you know, he rather just sweetly and naively says, would you be willing to just call my dad and say sorry, repent? He's looking for some kind of healing, right? There is such healing in a sincere apology. It can cover so many wrongs. I mean, I take great comfort in that as a father. In, in repentance, when there's a sincere turning and acknowledgement that a wrong has been done, that, that it shouldn't have been done, that there's no excuse, and there's a turning of the heart with a sincere intent to live differently, not, not perfection, but a reorientation. But Mark doesn't do it again and again and again. And man, it, it is concerning. And I just want to say to him, if he were here, Mark, if, if God's gracious love isn't going to humble you, and that's the offer, let God's gracious love humble you, then maybe this will. There is an axe at the root of the tree. And in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's gathering that the, the wheat into his barn and the chaff he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. I mean, we're not messing around here. Winnowing was familiar to all Palestinian Jews. After the wheat was put on the threshing floor and kind of beaten a little bit, they would take the winnowing fork and throw it into the air, and the wheat would fall to the ground, and the chaff, which was lighter, would blow away, and then it would be gathered together and burned. And so for me, for you, for Mark, judgment is a coming reality. But thanks be to God, it is never too late for repentance. It's still not too late for him. It's not too late for you or me. Like the father of the lost son, I believe that the Lord's heart is ready to turn at the slightest hint of our turning towards him. If you think about the parable of the lost son, there's a little debate around it, but for the most part, it seems like the younger son who comes back to the father has a lot of mixed motives. There's a lot of selfish motives. He's tired of eating pig slop, right? But the father's ready to run to him, even with this mixed motive, fumbling apology. That's the heart of God. It's never too late for you to repent, to turn towards him. So friends, if you want to oppose Almighty God, minimize the hurts you've done. When someone comes to you with pain that you've caused, maybe a spouse comes and says, this hurt, Uh, I I have an issue with this, then defend your rights. Plead your case to make sure you don't come out looking dirty. And when God comes to warn you, tell him off for being a bully, for being a micromanager, for being a fun hater. Build a cement wall of defensiveness and excuses and shame and secrecy and laziness around the sins that you cherish most. Maybe it's your lust of the eye. Maybe it's your hunger for more. You always need more. 
Maybe anger, maybe your, your terse impatience, maybe it's your idolatry of power or of popularity. Maybe it's just your pedigree. In other words, oppose God by hardening your heart like Herod did, as we read this morning. When John the Baptist comes to him and says, you've done this wrong, you need to repent, what does Herod do? He locks him up in prison. So if you want to oppose Almighty God, maybe first and foremost, what you need to do is lock the Word of God up far away from you. Don't expose yourself to it. Don't let it speak to you. Don't let it correct you. Stay as far away from those words as you can. More quickly now with the remaining two, if you want to oppose Almighty God, be a Scrooge. And lastly, put your faith in someone or something other than Jesus. One of the best ways to oppose Almighty God is to be a Scrooge. Dickens described Scrooge this way, Oh, but he was a tight-fisted, hand-at-the-grindstone Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. He iced his office and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. Isn't it interesting that three times in verses 10 through 14 we find the question, what must we do? What must we do? John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And first the crowd generally, then the tax collectors, then the soldiers say, okay, what does that fruit look like? What must we do? And to the crowds, he says, share your clothes and your food with those in need. To the tax collectors and soldiers, what he doesn't say is almost as interesting as what he does say. He doesn't say, get a new job, which is interesting because tax collectors were traitors, Jewish men who had agreed to collect taxes from their fellow Jews on behalf of Roman oppressors. So they made their living in Jewish eyes by supporting an unjust regime. And more than that, they made their wealth by collecting far more taxes than they should have, pocketing the surplus. And they became incredibly wealthy that way. Similarly, with soldiers, it was commonplace for them to be corrupt, extorting money with threats or accusation. And it's noteworthy, then, that John's social concern is not, in the end, completely revolutionary. He doesn't say, leave your job. He doesn't try to overthrow the system. Rather, he focuses on the individual responsibility of repentant sinners to reform their own behaviors, to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Each fruit of repentance, then, John offers to the crowds, tax collectors, and soldiers has to do with money. And therefore, with power. Repentance is an act of laying down power. Acknowledging that we are wrong and in need of help and grace. Thus, the fruits of repentance are a humble life. Where power structures are inverted. The power we do have, we now use not for ourselves, but for the good of others. Repentance leads to the humble use of power. And to integrity and to generosity. These things can be a good barometer for us as we're thinking about how, to what degree, are we living into a lifestyle of repentance? It is an ongoing lifestyle, and we can grow in it. So as you think, how am I doing with all this? Ask yourself, how do I know? If I, ask yourself this. Am I growing in humility? Am I growing in integrity? John says, don't collect more than, than you should. And in, am I growing in generosity? Give your stuff away. Those are really good markers of whether or not you're growing in repentance. If you're growing... You can say yes to those things. If not, you're becoming more like Scrooge, opposing the purposes of Almighty God for your own life and for his world. St. Basil the Great put it this way. The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The cloak in your wardrobe belongs to the naked. The shoes you allow to rot belong to the barefoot. The money in your vaults belongs to the destitute. So if you'd like to oppose Almighty God, Tighten your fists, 
grasp and scrape and covet like Scrooge, and in the end, you will be in darkness with your only comfort, being that the darkness is cheap. Lastly, and most importantly, if you want to oppose Almighty God, put your faith in someone or something other than Jesus. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation, that is, expectation for a Messiah, a rescuer, a deliverer, and they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered him saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So for context, the work of untying sandals was the, the work of the lowest form of slave. So in the strongest possible terms, John is opposing the people's swelling hopes that he might be the Messiah. Maybe John was the one to finally save him. John says, no, not even close, not even worthy to untie his sandals. This was not false humility. John is right. You know, Jesus said of John, he's the greatest man ever born of a woman. And here's John saying, I am not worthy to even be his lowest form of slave. Why? If you ever hear someone argue that the Bible never says explicitly that Jesus is God, show them this. In Luke chapter 3, verse 4, John announces Jesus' ministry with the ancient words of Isaiah 43. Prepare the way for the Lord. In Isaiah's words here, the Lord is not Lord as in like Lord so-and-so, the Downton Abbey guy, um, someone with a lot of power or authority. We don't, we're not talking about someone in charge, Lord. Rather, the word Lord here in Isaiah 40 is Yahweh, the personal name of God. Traditionally, this name was replaced by Lord out of sacred respect for not saying the divine personal name. So here Jesus is being herald, heralded not as some kind of lordly figure, but as Yahweh, the personal name of God. John the Baptist says, prepare the way for Yahweh to announce Jesus' is coming. And this is what makes Christianity unique. No other religion even makes this claim. Christianity is not fundamentally an ethic. It's not fundamentally a list of rules or, or a way of life, although it has implications for all this. It is the announcement that the almighty creator God of the universe has arrived into his own creation in the person of Jesus. So prepare his way. Make his path straight. You know, in the ancient Near East, there were not a lot of roads, at least until Rome came along. And most of the roads were essentially just paths that had been worn down by people walking on them. That's not going to do for a king, though, is it? A king has an entourage and, and all kinds of people to bring. And so he'd send his messengers and architects ahead of him and build a wide road so his way would be straight. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's his architect. He's his forerunner, his messenger, saying, prepare the way. We've got to get these big boulders out of the way. We've got to make this road wider. We've got to build the gate bigger. Because he's the king coming to his creation. So when John says, make Yahweh's path straight, this is the choice before you, this Advent. Thinking again of what does it mean to make his path straight? Repentance. What are the fruits of repentance? Well, humility, integrity, generosity. So in your own hearts, in your marriages, in your vocations, in your relationship with your friends and roommates, in your life generally, Oppose and obstruct his path or make it straight. It's a choice each of us must make. Deny his coming judgment or welcome it. Because it means the end of evil and it means eternal justice. Oppose him by relying on your pedigree or welcome him by relying on repentance. Oppose him by being a Scrooge or welcome him with humility and integrity and generosity. 
towards those in need. Oppose him by smoothing the path for so-called other gods around you, which you build your life around, or welcome Jesus as the one true almighty God of the universe, the king of kings, as scandalous and difficult as a claim that that is. So in the end, I do advise you to welcome the judgment of Christ and to rely on repentance, to give generously and deal honestly, and to trust Jesus as your Messiah. Again, I hope you heard ultimately the heart of God for you this morning in the Old Testament reading. There is this warning of justice, of judgment, but there is such a deep grace on offer for repentance. And as we turn to him ever so slightly, even just just turn your heart to him, he's ready to exalt over you in singing and delight over you with his love. So would you join me now in praying this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer for those in our lives and maybe even for ourselves in places we are not repentant. This is a prayer for the unrepentant. So bringing yourself and those that you know and love before the Lord, would you hear this prayer? Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son, you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt for your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them and us home and number them among your children that they may be yours forever through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.